Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 97 of the Australian Hiker Podcast. And in this week's episode, we're going to be doing something just a bit different. Uh, we're going to be doing a Q&A session. Uh, and this is based on uh, questions that we've got, particularly over the last month. But there's a few going back um, a few months uh, and even further that we haven't got around to answering. So we hope you find these useful. So thanks everyone for sending in their questions and uh, as Tim said, we've got a few that we've picked out that we're going to answer tonight. Um, the first one is from Sally and uh, she says, my husband and I have hiked for years and have continued to update our gear. We have gifted heaps to scout groups in the past. Uh, it turns out that our knees and backs don't want to carry the same gear we used to. Any ideas about the best forum for selling? Okay, so there's, there's probably a couple of things I'd say here. I mean, you know, in this case here, Sally and her, and her husband have gone through and donated uh, some gear to scout groups, and this is always a good option. Sometimes it's just an easier thing to do. The other thing I'd say as well is um, sometimes it's good to have a bit of spare gear aside uh, for when you're taking family and friends out, or if... Um, something needs repairing or fixing it's good to have a spare but i certainly agree that you know at some point you can only have so much gear and you need to start clearing stuff out is that right tim <laughs> you should see our garage <laughs> I, have, I haven't got i haven't got there yet so there are a number of online forums and particularly hiking based forums obviously things like gumtree and uh, and the online uh, selling forums but the hiking specific ones uh, and we'll go through and um, uh, list these in our show notes. But those are Gear Freak Australia and Hiking and Camping Gear for Sale, New and Used Australia. And these are two that I actually belong to as a uh, 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 and follow. And, and while I don't actually sell gear through them, it's good to give good to give you an idea of what's being sold and the prices people are asking. And I think the main thing is when you're you're selling your gear, you have to decide whether or not you want a fantastic price and you're willing to wait, or you want a decent price that's perhaps not as large, um, but you'll get much faster. So, you know, there is a bit of a balance there and you need to decide what's important for you. All right. So the next question is, um, I wish to inquire and request more information, re-rain jackets, um, and in this case here, this is Adrian, uh, has purchased a rain jacket um, uh, in what he thought was his size, but the, his wife thinks that he's gotten the wrong size, which was a large, uh, which in this case of this jacket was 100 centimetres on the chest. Now, his question is, do they need or does he need to buy the bigger size? And the answer is it depends. <laughs> so it depends on what you're planning to wear underneath your jacket, Adrian, and... Um, 
as as you all know, we do layering. So we will at some point have every piece of gear, if it's wet enough and cold enough, uh, we'll have every piece of uh, clothing that we are carrying on with our rain jacket over the top. So if uh, that's your ambition and the current size that you have isn't quite big enough to do that, then yes, you need a bigger size. Um, if there's only one or two thinner layers that you're planning to wear under your jacket, and again, it does um, does depend on the climate uh, that you're hiking in, and you have said that you're, you're looking at doing alpine hiking, that kind of suggests to me that you'll have potentially a bunch of layers under your jacket. So it might mean uh, you need a bigger size, uh, but test it out. Put everything on and see how much room you've got to move um, with all the layers and the jacket over the top. And I think this is particularly important with things like rain jackets. There's not a lot of stretch and flex in most rain jackets on the market. They tend to be a, uh, essentially what amounts to being a plastic shell uh, and doesn't have much flex. So you'll find that between different brands, you might be a large in one brand, a medium in another, and an extra large in another, uh, between different types of gear. So for me, um, I wear anything, uh, size-wise, I wear anything between a medium and an extra large, depending on the individual piece of gear that I'm wearing. I like to have my uh, 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 thermal tops and um, underlayers being not overly tight, but like them being snug. I don't like them having them loose and baggy. Whereas certainly with something like the rain gear, as Jill said, it needs to have the ability to fit everything that you're going to potentially add in the layering system. Yeah, and just on the the sizing, um, for me, I don't find that there's actually that much variability in the size uh, indicated on the clothing that I purchase. So I'm not quite sure whether or not that's a standard thing for women, but Tim's clothing uh, for hiking definitely has a bigger range of sizing indicated on the labels. So the next question we have is, uh, again, from Adrian, um, and it's about uh, an appropriate top for hiking. Uh, He says, uh, what's the appropriate top? Uh, I'm sure flannelette shirt is out of the question. Uh, is Is a thermo top uh, suitable or not and uh, just to make it clear flannelette is definitely out of the question for a lots and lots lots of different reasons <laughs> apart, apart from the case you look really bad so <laughs> well that's probably the main one <laughs> um now again there's there's no right and wrong answer through here as as you know just following on from the previous question as jill said we tend to layer um and we have a layering system that works for us fairly well um, I don't tend to wear short sleeve shirts. I think um, in the last two and a half years, I've worn a short sleeve shirt on a hike uh, where you you can see a photo of me, uh, and that's really a rarity. Um, quite often, I'm hiking in areas where there's insect issues like ticks, or for a lot of areas that, that Jill and I hike in, we have march flies, and march flies can actually bite through thinner material, Um, uh, and so you don't want to encourage them by having bare skin. The other issue, particularly in Australia, lots of UV radiation, uh, very easy to get sunburn in a lot of areas, so having that that full uh, protection on on the body um, is the way we tend to go. So for me, the only things that tend to be exposed is my face 
and the backs of my hands, and that's about it. Um, and even with that, I still managed to get sunburn occasionally in those areas. So I, I as I said, I'm a strong believer in having a very good coverage, uh, but I know that's not what everybody does. Uh, there are a lot of people that do hike in T-shirts, um, but as I said, I, I, uh, I prefer to use merino wool, and I prefer the thinner, um, lighter weight versions uh, as my main top, and they'll layer up with heavier material um, uh, as the, the conditions dictate. Some of the tech tops are good. Some of the synthetic fibres um, are quite good. Um, I, I do think this one is much more of a personal choice um, than anything. And, uh, you know, as Tim said, he, he prefers the uh, merino. I've got a bit of a mix depending on uh, where I'm going and what I'm doing. So, um, yeah, no easy answer to this one. And uh, I would say, though, that um, some of those uh, more, um, I guess, the synthetic feeling uh, tech tops don't quite work for me when it's really, really, really hot. So uh, that's just something to think about, I think. And I, and I even even for me, I do wear merino tops even during the summertime. So the very thin, lightweight ones work well for me. Mm-hmm. One thing I would say now, when I'm talking about merino, uh, a, a number of the bigger uh, manufacturers on the Australian market that are that are introducing a lot of new product onto the Australian market are now using hybrid merino. And by that I mean they're using merino, which has been uh, had a, a synthetic fibre physically incorporated into the, the material. Not hybrid sheep. Not no. hybrid sheep, no. So it's actually merino <laughs> sheep. Uh, but, um, yeah, as I said, it's uh, uh, the technology is, is changing and the, uh, the, the longer uh, the, the, the hybrid materials are becoming more and more common. Okay, our next question is, um, I, this is from Austin. Uh, I plan on wearing full-length skins for the majority of the hike, easy to dry out, etc., and relatively warmish but have considered maybe purchasing some wet weather pants. Your thoughts? Now, Austin, firstly, I must say, if you're wearing full-length skins, I hope you're going to be wearing shorts as well. Um, A little bit of modesty is a good thing. Um, Having said that, I'd also suggest that the skins probably are not going to be as robust uh, when you're sitting on logs and rocks and on the ground and so on. So you might actually need those shorts to... Um, provide yourself with a bit of uh, wearing protection anyway. Um, not sure that they're relatively warmish. It does depend on the kind that you have, but um, I'll leave that up to you. In terms of the wet weather pants, absolutely. Um, you never know when the weather's going to turn. Um, and if it turns pretty, pretty bad um, and you have only your, your skins uh, that you're wearing, then you really want to keep them dry if it gets pretty cold. So a pair of wet weather pants over the top is the way to go. Now, again, this is one of these things where you'll get a lot of argument within the hiking community where um, a lot of people say, no, you know, wearing rain pants, waste of time, don't need to do it. Um, it's really up to you. I, I personally prefer to do it. Um, I find that um, I only tend to hike with one pair of pants, and I do have a pair of shorts and uh, long johns I'll use as town pants or uh, if I'm needing to wash my main gear. Uh, but certainly I prefer not to get sopping wet. And it, it doesn't particularly worry me during the, the hot weather, but when it's really cold, the last thing you want to do is have wet clothing when it is cold. And, I, and I'm talking about 
cold weather, not uh, not just cool weather. Yeah, so the, I mean, I guess the thing is, if you're out for a day or a day or two days, you probably won't be um, too worried. Um, you'll be able to look at the weather forecast, and that'll give you a bit of a sense of what might happen. Um, but if it's any longer than that, you just don't know. So um, I probably can count the number of times that I've uh, pulled my rain pants out, uh, count them on one hand, but I have been very appreciative of the fact that I've had rain pants to put on on those occasions. So, you know, it, it, it they don't take up that much room and uh, they're definitely worth it if you really need them. For those of you that have listened to um, uh, all of our podcasts, you'll be very much aware that I hiked the Bibbulmun Track in 2018 uh, and I had around about 28 days of rain out of 36 days. Uh, and on some of those days, the rain was driving sideways. I think uh, most people in Australia are aware you you uh, did the Bibbulmun Track and uh, of those people, almost everybody would be aware of the rain statistics that you've given, <laughs> but yeah, I, I know I, I know I tend to harp on about this trip, but it, it certainly made, made no, a, <laughs> it certainly made a big difference um, having that rain gear uh, because you know there's just no way that I was going to be able to dry the gear from day to day. Okay, so our next question again, uh, this one is also from Austin. Uh, we're hiking the Overland Track in Tasmania uh, in twenty days, and are making the final pre- preparations for the event. As you guys have done, and it is well documented, what are your personal thoughts towards carrying hiking poles? I'm a big fan of hiking poles, uh, and my history with hiking poles has been a bit varied. The first time I ever saw hiking poles was in uh, uh, in Peru when we were hiking and, and doing the Salkantai track. And... Uh, we were sitting on the side of the trail and we saw these two Americans come past with these really strange-looking sticks and thought, what the hell are those? Um, but I've certainly become a convert since. Um, I have no problem going uphill. And in fact, um, when I'm going uphill with hiking poles, they will actually uh, speed me up because I'm focusing on using the poles as well as uh, using my legs. And I do tend to increase in speed going up hills in a lot of cases. The real reason that I like using hiking poles is coming downhill. Um, the compression on my knees, I get uh, painful knees. So particularly on the overland track, uh, but probably any track where there's uh, some decent downhills, it's nice just to be able to put a bit of, take some of that pressure and that compression off your knees and put them on the, on the poles through your upper body. Yeah, uh, on the overland track, I did find that the hiking poles um, got in the way a little bit. Um, uh, some of the, the track is quite narrow, so uh, using the poles, uh, you didn't really have enough uh, sideways spread, so I tended to um, keep them out but basically put them in uh, one hand and walk along with them in uh, one hand. Um, they don't work so well on the um, boardwalks, so that's something else. Uh, again, I just put them in one hand and walk along for a while. Um, they were good on the uneven ground and the the uphill and downhill slopes, particularly where there were lots of tree, tree roots. Uh, so that was quite good, and the, the tree roots are quite slippery. 
Um, and then there was uh, one particular day where uh, I did have my rain pants on and it was pouring, pouring, pouring. And uh, we were moving along and uh, quite a bit of downhill and lots of water. So the hiking poles were good in that that case. So I, I for me, I don't have them out all the time. Uh, if I have them out, I do um, rest them every now and then by just putting both in one hand and walking along. Um, but Tim's probably a, a more consistent user of the poles than I am. I mean, the other reason that I like carrying hiking poles, it's it's good when the, uh, the track is actually uh, – um, quite clear and open, but sometimes you get the tracks overgrown. And, um, you know, there's a couple of, tra- of hikes around Canberra that I do where the, uh, um, uh, their, their best way to describe this is that the trail is snake infested, uh, and the track is very heavily overgrown. So being able to have the poles out in front of you, um, and to be able to, um, I suppose create a bit of extra noise if you like, uh, and and brush some of the the the, the growth apart. Uh, this means you can see where you're putting your feet, uh, and it gives you a bit more warning. So yeah, and it, it it's good to frighten the snakes so that they um, scuttle over your your hiking partner's boots rather than your your boots. Isn't that right, Tim? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's definitely the case. I've done that <laughs> to Tim. That is. <laughs> Um, and you know that that will lead. We'll actually talk about that incident in in one of the later questions. The next question is: My Thermarest Neo Air regular needs to be blown up through the night, so I'm guessing what everyone would be guessing, uh, i.e., there's a leak. Thing is, I've done everything to find the little blighter and can't locate it. Not even in the bathtub. Um, not even the bathtub offered me an answer. And this was from Christine. So um, I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer this one because um, I too had a leak in my Neo Air and uh, uh, it it took me a long time to realise and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, in, in the end I did find it and I did find it in the bathtub um, but I completely botched the uh, patching <laughs> exercise. So I think at this point in time, I might just hand over to Tim and he can answer this one. <laughs> okay. This is one of the issues, uh, and it doesn't really matter what the brand is, but this is one of the issues with the inflatable sleeping mats. If you're in an area that has rough and rocky ground and you're doing enough days, the potential is that you might actually get a leak. And I've certainly had leaks in my uh, my inflatable sleeping mat. Uh, and there's been a couple of things that have certainly helped uh, to remedy that. You can actually use a bath, um, but in some respects, I think it's actually better to take it outside onto a concrete surface or a flat surface that's uh, uh, away from the house. Fill up a spray bottle with uh, warm water and dishwashing detergent. So you're getting a, a soapy sort of mix. Uh, and then go through and uh, inflate your mat to its full capacity and spray the detergent mix uh, over the mat. Now you want to do this section by section and work your way over the entire surface of mat, taking your time. So you want to start at the bottom of the mat, I presume, and work up. Yeah, I think that's, you know, you start in some, you know, whichever way you place you want to start, start in some logical sequence and don't forget where you are. Um, it may take a while, particularly if there's more than one leak or it's a really tiny leak. And that's often the case. If there's a big hole in the mat, it's easy to locate usually. It, it, what you've normally got is such this tiny little hole um, that's difficult to find. 
you want to pay close attention to the seams. And if you do find a hole, um, mark it with a permanent marker and then just keep on moving on uh, until you've worked out there is only one hole or where, where there's a couple of holes. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to patch one hole and then discover that you actually had two. Usually most inflatable sleeping mats will come with a patch kit. Uh, but before you do, you want to wash all the soapy water off the mat um, and let the mat thoroughly dry to get a, a, a good secure patch. Now, I have to say at this point, and I did botch the patching of my uh, Neo Air, and um, I, of, of course it was not user error. It was the instructions. They they just were not intuitive in any way whatsoever and uh, – you know, uh, here I am trying to follow step by step and it's it, it just didn't work. And uh, then uh, I did it and uh, I think it was day two on a camping trip. Tim looked at what I'd done and <laughs> just kind of went, what, <laughs> you did that? Well, the instructions said to do that. So just have a think about um, – what you think it might need to look like when you've finished, <laughs> I think, is probably fair. <laughs> now, the other issue um, uh, can be actually be not actually the, the mat itself, but actually the closure system or the closure, closure valve. And I find with my Neo Air that it takes about uh, until about 5 a.m. in the morning before I notice that the air is leaked out. So there's a when I have had problems in the past, it's been a minute leak. Uh, and I've taken my mat into some pretty harsh conditions. Um, and um, I found that uh, you know, normally it'll get me 90% of, or 95% of the way through the night. And usually if I'm going to get up early, it's about 5.30. So it's not quite the entire night. Um, so what I found there is um, closing the cap firmly without uh, reefing it, you know, trying to break it if you like. Um, and blowing the mat up to be fairly well inflated makes a big difference. I have less of an issue when my mat is fully inflated. If I only inflated about 80 to 90%, that's when I tend to have problems with the leaks. Um, so I find that by cleaning the closure valve with something like a toothbrush every so often um, uh, makes quite a big difference. Um, and as a side sleeper on a, uh, an inflatable mat, I do need to have that full inflation. Otherwise, I'm starting to my hips starting to press into the ground. So, so this is completely um, off off topic in terms of um, uh, punctures and patching and and so on. Um, but I also find that my neo air, when it's fully inflated, slips away from me. It just kind of flips out, and I end up either. Um, stuck in the middle of the tent or stuck, you know, with my face pushed up against the side of the tent. Um, I have a silk uh, sleeping bag liner, which I don't use very often, but I find is absolutely fantastic in uh, putting over the top of the, um, the Neo Air, just inserting the Neo Air into uh, the sleeping bag liner and then putting my sleeping bag on top of the mat inside the sleeping bag bag liner if that makes sense um it just stops it from flipping about and um keeps it quite steady so uh, that's probably the best use i have for the sleeping bag liner i think 
I must admit that, that, that the, the issue that Jill has with this is probably the only second time I've actually heard it, and I have heard someone else mention this as an issue. But uh, you know, for me, uh, I don't end up coming off the mat. It's uh, I don't have any issue at all, so I don't know what's going on there. It's like a surfboard, seriously. <laughs> So, yeah, it may sound like we're bagging the Neo Airs. Both Jill and I own them and are very happy with them. Uh, and as I said, it's an issue that with inflatable sleeping mats. Um, it's an issue you don't have with the foam mats, but you also don't have the comfort either. So it's, you know, you've, you, there's no such thing as a perfect sleeping mat. There's issues there somewhere along the line. So our next question, I'm not quite sure who the next question is from. Um, I'm curious to know if you have any tips for setting up and packing up in a downpour. Obviously, it's ideal to wait until the rain subsided, uh, but sometimes this isn't an option. Setting and packing up a tent is particularly onerous as it can lead to a damp night's sleep and extra weight in your pack. Any tips, hints, ideas? And my hint would be do it fast. <laughs> okay, so the what I'd say here is there's no one way of doing this, and it really is going to depend on the type of tent that you have. Jill and I um, have um, uh, a couple of freestanding tents uh, with the in tent inner and the tent fly being separate pieces. You also get uh, tents on the market which tend to be semi-freestanding that have the tent inner and the tent uh, fly actually physically attached to each other. So it means that you're going to be doing things slightly differently depending on which brand or which model of tent that you've got. So if it's just really light rain, my comment would be just go for it um, and actually just, just set it up in a fairly quick sort of uh, manner. Um, from my perspective, with our big Agnes Copper Spur tent, I can uh, get it, providing I've got a piece of flat ground, um, I can get it up, uh, the tent up in probably around about um, two to three minutes. Um, so if it's only light rain, normally I wouldn't worry too much about it. You do need to be careful not to get too much inside the tent. That's probably the, the main thing. Um, and, you know, thinking about how you're pulling the tent out of the um, uh, this thinking about how you pull your tent uh, out of its carry bag um, is probably a good idea at this point as well. Now, when it becomes a real issue is trying to put up in really heavy rain. Now, there's heavy rain and there's heavy rain. You know, if you're, uh, if it's a gale force wind conditions, if, um, you know, if I've been out in, out in conditions where we've had a hundred millimetre of rain in one hour. Um, you, you're fighting a bit of losing battle when the conditions are like that. And you've just got to try and do the best you can because you've got to be able to get the tent up in such a way that you don't have it ripped out of your hands from the strong winds. But if we're just dealing with um, rain, um, in the case of the two-piece tents, something like our big Agnes or the MSRs or some of the similar sort of brands, um, generally what we do with our tent is set up the ground sheet uh, and the pole system first, have the, the ground sheet pegged into the ground, uh, then um, have the fly, get the fly up um, and then the tent inner can go up as the last piece and you're, you're putting the tent inner up from inside the tent itself. It's going to take you a bit longer. Um, you know, there's no way knowing I can get my tent up in this method um, uh, uh, as quickly as I can. 
but it does mean by spending the additional time, you can um, actually get the uh, uh, the inside of the tent relatively dry. And the main thing about the inside of the tent with those two pieces, two piece tents, is that um, generally uh, a good proportion, if if not in as in some cases. Um, the top part of the tent is actually all mesh. So the last thing you want to do is um, get it wet. Um, so getting in under the fly and doing it as you as you go under the fly is the best way. The thing you've got to be careful here, if it is raining, quite often it might, might mean it's muddy or you've got fairly dirty uh, shoes or hiking boots, um, is to, once you're actually starting to work on the tent inner, that you're not going to be getting uh, uh, wet uh, your wet clothing or uh, your shoes inside the tent, um, uh, and again with uh, with something like our big Agnes, um, you know the the sleeping uh, uh, equipment which is currently sitting in in its pack or in the pack um, is sitting under the vestibule, uh, and then you you bring in what you need uh, rather than trying to bring your sopping wet pack into the tent. Um, so it's a, just going to be a bit more fiddly. Um, uh, and I must admit, my preference is if I know that I'm going to be starting to look at uh, rain conditions um, and it's close to being time for me to set up uh, my tent, I might stop a bit earlier just because it makes it a bit easier. Uh, and I've had that on trips where I've had the tent set up and then minutes later it's bucketed down with rain. Um, but sometimes you don't have that option. It's been raining all day and you just have to do the best you can and just take your time doing it. So the other thing um, when you're taking the tent down, um, you need to fold it in such a way. Um, it's hard to do this if it's still raining, but if it's stopped raining, fold it in such a way um, that you're not going to get water or, or moisture inside the tent again. And if you can, during the day uh, when it's not raining, uh, get it out and air it and take advantage of every opportunity to dry your tent out. So next question is from Bernadette. Uh, Any tips for snake bite avoidance? I have a phobia of brown snakes. Ha ha. Don't we all? It's. I find... For most hikers, the concern about snakes is probably one of the biggest fears, particularly for newer hikers. Um, And it really is going to depend on where you are hiking and the time of the year and all sorts of different factors. Last year, as in, I'll say, the 2017 and 2018 uh, summertime, spring through to summer and into autumn, I saw more snakes than I had in probably, probably the previous five years put together. And that could possibly be because I was in more remote areas, um, but it's not necessarily the case. Um, Jill mentioned the, the the thing about carrying walking poles before, and the, the background with that one was we were walking on a section of the Australian Alps walking track. Um, this section was, it wasn't overgrown, but there were tufts of, um, of grass in the track and it hadn't been, hadn't been mown um, uh, so far that season. And um, Jill was only in front of me a few metres. Um, she went past a tuft of grass. I was following behind her, and the next thing I know, it felt like there was a hose being dragged across my feet. Uh, and I saw a rather large brown snake who'd obviously been sleeping underneath the tuft of grass, uh, which Jill had startled. 
and thankfully it decided it wasn't going to bite. Um, it was going to escape, uh, but it, it did so over my feet. Um, so, and I was completely oblivious. I didn't see it at all. <laughs> um, and, and in that sort of situation, having that's where having the walking poles certainly does help. That you know you disturb it uh, beforehand. I think um, there's there's one of these sort of things. Avoiding snakes, unfortunately, means pretty much you don't hike. Um, at some point, you will come across snakes. Um, it's it's a matter of paying attention. Um, scanning the track ahead of me. And while I tend to tune out, the one thing I am doing is I'm visibly looking at the track in front of me um, and um, seeing what I'm about to put my feet on. Um, if it is overgrown, as I said, I'll often um, br- use the walking poles to, to brush the sides of the track just to make sure there's nothing sitting just off the side of the track. The... Only time that I've actually seen brown snakes on a hiking track was um, on the outskirts of Canberra in the Brindabella Mountains. Uh, and I had seen a tiger snake earlier on that day in the middle of the track. And this was in a fairly overgrown area. Um, coming back, um, I was walking along Management Road uh, and I came across two brown snakes that were sunning themselves in the middle of the road. It wasn't a very commonly used road, uh, so the snakes were quite happy to be out there in the sun. Uh, and these weren't together. These were you know, a couple of hundred metres apart. Um, and that's when I'd probably tuned out a bit and thought, okay, I'm on a road. I don't need to think about it. Uh, but you know, if, the, if the weather conditions are a bit cooler, uh, the snakes will be out there um, uh, certainly looking to get a bit of warmth and a bit of sun. Um, yeah, and the, uh, the first one I saw... I only noticed it because it was moving fairly quickly off the road and lifted its head and turned sideways towards me, um, which was what they um, they class as a, a semi-threat posture. It wasn't really in in full, full threat mode, um, but it was saying, "Keep away from me because uh, you, you know you won't like the result if you come close." So I just stopped, let it go off the track, and then continued on. The second one after that, I was paying attention. Uh, I saw it. Um, I just tapped the road a few times with my hiking poles. It, it sort of realised I was there and, again, just scuttled off the side of the road. So, as I said, it, it's really the only way you can avoid snakes uh, is to not hike. Um, but pay attention is probably the main thing. Um, and, yeah, you know, for me, as I said, I rarely, if ever, wear gaiters. Um, uh, I tend to, to prefer to hike without them. But there is one hike in particular where uh, going off the track, and this is where I saw the tiger snake, I will always wear them because I know snakes can be an issue, particularly in that section uh, of the walk because it is overgrown. Okay, now another tip from, uh, another question from Bernadette uh, is any tips for female solo hikers? Look, I I, I think... Um for this one, the only thing that specifically for uh, female solo hikers I can think of would be uh, a shiwi, um, something uh, that would enable you to um, go to the toilet uh, fairly discreetly and uh, conveniently uh, without having to, you know, drop your pants completely in the middle of nowhere and not being aware of who might be around. Um, that's probably the only female-related one I can think of. 
all solo hikers, I think, uh, should have a personal locator beacon um, uh, or a, a GPS with um, satellite messaging, uh, preferably. Um, but, you, you know, uh, that's just about everybody. Uh, I think for females, uh, you know, be, be, be clear on where you're planning to get to um, and, you know, stay within uh, your limits plus a bit of stretch. Um, you don't want to play too safe um, when you're out. You want to challenge yourself, um, but just be aware of uh, how much challenging you are doing of yourself. So from a female perspective, as I said, the only thing I can really think of or, or suggest is a shiwi. So uh, in episode 44, we did women in hiking and uh, we also did some interviews of, of women hikers in episode 45. So that would be uh, something good to go and uh, listen to and uh, get a few more tips. So next question, uh, I would like to do a navigation course that includes map reading and compass use. Uh, do you have any recommendations? Uh, survival skills would be an added bonus. I live in Jarvis Bay, so Canberra is not out of the question. This is a difficult one, and, and it's um, um, I'll I'll go through and put some uh, contact points uh, uh, on the show notes. Certainly for us, uh, we had this same thought a few years ago, uh, and we ended up going up to the Blue Mountains, uh, and we used the Australian School of Mountaineering. Uh, they run regular navigation courses, and I think they do also offer survival courses as well um, as far as surviving in the bush. So there are um, different schools and uh, places that will run these courses around Australia. That was just one example that we mentioned. So as I said, if you go to the show notes, I'll go through and put a list of ones that I'm at least aware of. Um, and you'll find that one other thing to consider as well is your local bushwalking clubs. Uh, quite often they will run uh, navigation uh, and survival courses, at least the bigger clubs will. So it's worthwhile getting in contact with them. Okay, so that was the last of our questions. We hope that uh, this has been helpful for you. We're going to go through and do a new segment of this show, and I must admit this is not original. There's a number of podcasts that, that do this, uh, and this is the iTunes five-star reviews. Um, so if you want to have your review uh, read out on the Australian Hiker podcast, we'll do this on a sort of semi-regular basis, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll be um, um, generous here. We're only going to read the five-star reviews. So starting off, we've got one from the Wonder Woman Hiker, um, and she says, my favorite podcast at the moment, so much useful information, especially love uh, that you um, – live in my neck of the woods and really enjoyed the Women and Hiking podcast. Thank you. The next five-star review is from Fatty Fatty McBot Bots. <laughs> Sorry, I'm stumbling over this one. Um, relevant and concise, uh, a great resource uh, for all trail hikers. Keep up the good work, Team Savage. Another one from Hippie Donna. Uh, brilliant podcast and so relevant to where I live. Great advice, uh, relevant and realistic approach. I love the intro music too. And Jules uh, 022 
I'm presuming, I presume that's not the year she was born. Um, says, uh, glad to hear some Australian content and gear reviews are helpful. I especially uh, like hearing about the wonderful places to hike around the country. Okay, so that was the first of our uh, uh, iTunes reviews, uh, and we'll be doing that probably uh, uh, every sort of third or fourth episode. So keep those five-star reviews coming in. Now, while many of you uh, listen to the Australian Hiker podcast, uh, you may not be aware that we also have other points of contact. So we have a Facebook page, Instagram and Twitter feeds, and more recently, we're becoming more uh, active on Pinterest. So we'll put the links to those social media pages on our show notes, uh, just if you if you haven't come across those before. Now, in our next podcast episode in two weeks' time, which is episode 98, we'll be discussing coffee on the trail. And this is a subject dear to many hikers' hearts. Certainly dear to my heart. I, I tend to go off coffee for a few days prior to hiking, so I don't get that horrible coffee absence headache. Um, but maybe I'll be convinced uh, through this episode to take some coffee with me. And we're going to be talking about different options for doing coffee on the trail, um, as well as um, uh, what else you can do as far as if you're not into coffee. As always, you can listen to the Australian Hiker podcast through our website at www.australianhiker.com.au, through iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and many others. Go through and give us a five-star rating on iTunes um, to help get the message out there. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me. Now, use the patch kit and usually most inflatable sleeping pads will. Okay, now, next question is my Thermarest Neo Rare. The, my, the next. And from Fatty Fatty MC Bot Bots. Uh, there's some... I, I, I think that's Fatty Fatty McBot Bots. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, got it. Okay. So the next one's from Fatty Fanny McBotBoots. No, <laughs> I still didn't get that right. <laughs>